following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 21 on Morgoth's Ring as we begin to work towards the end of the Athrobeth. Uh, we are coming to the the big finish, both metaphysically and uh, emotionally big finish uh, of the Athrobeth tonight. Uh, we'll see how close we can get to the end. I want to jump straight towards that, so only uh, just do one quick announcement uh, at the beginning. First is just to remind everybody about uh, the upcoming moot uh, that we have. We have Middle Moot uh, online, which is happening this year. Everyone is welcome. Uh, so that is uh, Saturday, October 10th. Uh, and uh, you'd be, I would love for you guys to join us. Go to signumuniversity.org slash events and you will find uh, Middle Moot coming up. The Heart of Hope is the theme uh, of that, the very locally applicable theme uh, of that um, uh, moot. So I certainly hope that um, uh, that we uh, uh, that we get some interesting suggestions and ideas. There's still time to submit uh, paper topics uh, or paper proposals, I should say, uh, or session proposals. Perhaps I should say even more generally um, uh, for that. So anyway, I uh, would really look forward to seeing uh, uh, some stuff emerge from our discussions here. Um, Certainly plenty of material in Morgoth's Ring that we've been talking about for a while here uh, to discuss in a moot. So, let us get back into the text and see how close we can get to the end of the Athrobeth uh, here this evening. So, um, this is where we finished last time. Uh, I just wanted to make sure we uh, reminded ourselves of uh, sort of the... The, the high point upon which we ended, and this was Finrod's remarkable conclusion, right? Remember, this is the conclusion which came from, this is him following the chain of reasoning, right, from the proposition that, um, that uh, Endreth had put to him, right, that the, uh, not only the Fea, but the Hroa of, or rather, that men were designed for immortality, right? True immortality from the beginning, never to die. Um, and that he reasoned, well, well, gosh, that could only be true if you're Hroa also. Because, you know, it's not possible for the Fae and the Hroa to be just divergent like that. There has to be coherence between the Fae and the Hroa. So, well, gosh, if your Fae were actually meant for eternal life like that, then you would have to take your Hroa with you. And this leads him, of course, to this very remarkable con uh, conclusion at which his heart leaps up as at the hearing of good news. This then, I propound, was the errand of men, not the followers, but the heirs and fulfillers of all, to heal the marring of Arda, already foreshadowed before their devising, and to do more, as agents of the magnificence of Eru, to enlarge the music and surpass the vision of the world. Okay, good. Yeah, I, sorry, sorry, I apologize. Uh, still sometimes happen doing too many things there we go okay there's your there's your slide but you guys didn't need to see this one because you've already heard this one before so no problems um, <laughs> okay there you are though just in case you wanted to see it as well okay not the followers but the heirs and fulfillers of all um, that the and I, I love the the tone of this Right, Finrod's uh, 
sort of joy and surprise here, right? It's almost like um, one of the things that particularly puzzled the elves was that um, uh, they didn't understand, like, wh- why should these other children of Iluvatar, right, with these their, their close kinsmen, first of all, why should they be different from them in this way? I mean, in this radical, enormous way, right? Why should they be so different? But even if they are different, why should they be, well, lesser, right? They seem lesser. Um, again, remember the parallel that Finrod made earlier uh, in the narrative, right? It was a kindly parallel, and it was a logical parallel, but it was also still kind of revealing, right? Uh, and this was when he was responding to the idea, when he was still resisting the idea of the immortality of men, um, you know, the previous early immortality of men. Uh, and he was saying, well, you know, like, lots of things live and die, and that's the natural order of it, right? You know, the plants and the animals, and we love them, but they come and go, and that's how it is in Um, uh, So maybe the same for you. But notice the, the parallel there. Notice the, the sort of implicit conclusion there, that on the one hand, the elves could see in the humans uh, you know, peers with themselves. We're both children of Iluvatar, right? We are, they are our close kindred, as Finrod says. And yet, they were also apparently close kindred to the animals, right? Uh, and like the animals and plants, they come and go at, from an elvish point of view, approximately the same rate, right? Um, and so that would have to seem odd, strange. Why is it that their kindred, the second comers, why is it that the, 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 the race subsequently revealed by Iluvatar should be, well, not to put too point, fine a point on it, a little bit disappointing, right? Or at least apparently, at least it would be easy to come to that conclusion. Or even I could go so far as to say one could forgive an elf who did come to that conclusion, right? That humans in the end don't really amount to much and are a bit of a letdown as the second children of Iluvatar, right? So again, in that context, I just love the tone of this. Not the followers, right? They're not just coming after us and pretty far back, let's be honest, right? Um, they are the heirs and the fulfillers of all. Um, the apparent weakness, right? The apparent unevenness between the elves and the human turns out to be reversed. And it's them who are going to bring fulfillment. Uh, they're the heirs of all of creation. They're the ones who are going to bring fulfillment to everything. They're the ones who are going to pull us up. We're not just pulling them up. They're pulling us up. And this is another thing to remember um, when we look at this, because this happens a lot, of course, right? We see this on several occasions uh, in The Lord of the Rings and certainly in the larger Silmarillion tradition as well. That is the way that the high pulls up the low, right? Look at the hobbits when they return to the Shire, right? The four travelers and how lordly they have become after being among the high, right? Uh, You know, uh, Saruman, sardonically observes how Frodo has grown, right? And that's clearly the kind of thing uh, that he's referring to. Um, But it's not just that, right? We see this kind of elevation, cultural, even spiritual elevation um, on the part of um, 
lower things, right, when they come into contact with higher things. And most of the time, that's the dynamic between the elves and the men, right? We see it with the elves themselves, of course, the Calaquendi versus the Moraquendi. When they go over and live in Amon with the Valar, they are elevated, right? And when the Adain come and live in Beleriand among the elves, they are elevated above, you know, the cultural level and even the... um, uh, uh, to some extent, it seems, the intellectual and spiritual level of their peers, right, who still remained uh, out in Eriador. Um, again, that's the normal dynamic. That's what we're used to seeing. Elves as the high and humans as the lower by default, right? Some of the humans can rise high, uh, but not. Uh, but in, but that's not their normal sort of level, right? And again, what, so what, what do we have here? What has Finrod perceived? It's reversed. That, yes, that happens. That's a legitimate thing. But that's a small thing. It's a tiny effect and a temporary effect, right? Whereas the ultimate and even eternal effect is the other way around, is that the humans are going to be pulling not only the elves, but all of creation after them. And that's kind of a big deal. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, Chris, you're absolutely right uh, that the normal dynamic also does go the other way, the the fading, the diminishing. Right. Uh, uh, Chris is thinking of Faramir saying we are become middlemen, men of the twilight. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the natural trend is to decline. So uh, sometimes that decline can be slowed in places. It can be reversed by the direct influence. Uh, whether it be of the elves or of the Valar or, or or whatever, right? Even the Numenorians on the non-Numenorian men, right? We see the same kind of thing happening there. Um, uh, even think about the comments in the Concerning Hobbits prologue about the influence on hobbits uh, of elvish lore and especially of uh, of Dunedain uh, sort of techniques, whether it be in agriculture or architecture or whatever, right? Or smoking, as the case may be, the growth of tobacco. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Now, David, you are absolutely right that the other thing we see in The Lord of the Rings is the little folk emerging to shake the counsels of the great. Absolutely. The importance of the lowly. Right, the significance of that which seems small, not despite the fact that it's small, but almost because it's small. Right, the importance not only of humility, that is not just, it's not only important that those that are high should be humble, which is certainly true, uh, but it is also true that those that are humble are by that humility elevated. Right. And great things are, are capable to be done through them um, because of their smallness, because of their littleness. Right. Um, but um, anyway, so that's um, uh, I, I agree, David. And so in some ways, one can almost see the role of the little people uh, in the Lord of the Rings in that kind of sense, the, the role of the small, the role of the humble. Uh, as being almost a kind of foreshadowing, right? Almost, not quite, but almost a kind of typological prefiguring of this larger spiritual effect that he's describing here. Um, Stephen, yes, there is a... You're right that it is 
reminiscent of. I wouldn't want to lean on it too far because there are lots of ways that that parallel could go wrong. Um, but I agree. It is reminiscent of the of the relationship between humans and angels uh, in traditional Christian theology. In particular, uh, the way in which one of the things, Stephen, that I was thinking of uh, when I was talking just a minute ago about that was the way in which... Um, in Christian, uh, in in medieval Christian theology, uh, humans occupy this unique position on the great chain of being. Um, they're located right between um, between angels and beasts, and humans are unique in the sense that they're amphibious. Right? They share the physical bodies of beasts and plants and rocks, but they also share the spiritual essence of angels, right? Whereas neither of the rest of them, right? The animals and the plants don't have souls like humans and angels, and the angels don't have bodies like the beasts and the plants. Um, humans alone are amphibians in that physical and spiritual world, right? And sort of partaking of both. Uh, and we can see a similar kind of like amphibiousness, right? The, the, um, the, uh, Finrod was kind of recognizing on the one hand, you are like to us, you are, you are, you are our close kin, but on the other hand, you're kind of more like the daisies in the field, right? Which today grow and tomorrow are cast into the, uh, into the oven. Um, and that's, you know, sort of the elvish point of view. So that was also Stephen reminding me of a similar kind of, but again, I, we can't push that parallel, right? It's not, Tolkien is not saying that, well, so angels are basically, uh, or elves are basically angels. That is not, not, not the case. Uh, so I, I want to be really, really cautious about that parallel, but I, but I agree. You're right. Um, and absolutely, George, uh, this, this, this whole idea um, certainly the concept of the resurrection of the body and the idea of humanity being the heirs and fulfillers of all in this sense of bringing in the fulfillment of all things and being uh, the heirs of creation, that is uh, a Christian tenet, as well as, as you point out, that uh, the business about the small becoming great. Um, uh, yes, yes, all of that. That is all very New Testament. Um, very much, very much. Okay. All right. Anyway, so that's me not talking about this. Let's uh, uh, move forward. This is Finrod continuing. For that Arda healed shall not be Arda unmarred, but a third thing and a greater and yet the same. Sorry, let me reread that because I mislaid the stress. For that Arda healed, that is that one, the one he was just referring to, that Arda healed shall not be Arda unmarred, but a third thing, and a greater, and yet the same. I have conversed with the Valar, who were present at the making of the music, ere the beginning of the world began. Er, sorry, ere the being of the world began. And now I wonder, did they hear the end of the music? Was there not something in or beyond the final chords of Eru, which, being overwhelmed thereby, they did not perceive? Or again, since Eru is forever free, maybe he made no music and showed no vision beyond a certain point. Beyond that point we cannot see or know, until by our own roads we come there, Valar, or Eldar, or men. As may a master in the telling of tales keep hidden the greatest moment until it comes in due course, it may be guessed, it may be guessed at indeed, in some measure, by those of us who have listened with full heart and mind, but so the teller would wish. 
In no wise is the surprise and wonder of his art thus diminished, for thus we share, as it were, in his authorship. But not so if all were told us in a preface before we entered in. I just absolutely love that analogy. Um, I love almost everything about that analogy. Um, let me come back to it, though. Remember, Finrod said a very revealing thing earlier in the conversation. It was when he was responding to Athrobeth's accusations that the elves know nothing of death, right? And when Finrod gave his slow-footed hunter speech, right, saying that death is going to come to all of the Eldar, right? We all know that death is coming. There is an end at the end of Arda, and we don't know what comes after it. But he didn't just say we don't know what comes after it. If you remember, what he said was, and no one speaks to us of hope. No one speaks to us of hope. Um, is there hope? Okay, maybe there's hope, right? Uh, but he says no one speaks to us of hope. Um, all they know, all they have been taught by the Valar is that the two things. One, your life is coterminous with Arda. You will endure for as long as Arda endures. And... Art is not going to endure forever, <laughs> right? Those are the two facts about this that they learned from the Valar, and the Valar knew nothing else about this, right? And so no one speaks to us of hope suggests that there is a tendency, there's even a temptation almost, for the elves themselves to despair, right? Um, to believe that, uh, well that they see the end beyond all doubt and that no one speaks to them of hope and they don't speak to each other of hope, right, about any of these things. Um, he here comes to this um, remarkable conclusion, right? He comes to this remarkable conclusion, uh, which is, Hang on a second. Hang on a second. Maybe the Valar didn't say anything about what comes next because they, they just didn't know. Maybe they didn't hear that part of the music and that I love his next things like, or again, since Eru is forever free, it's like, you know, come to think of it, there could be plans that Eru has that he didn't even put in the music. Right? That he didn't give in the... It's not just that the Valar, the vision was taken away ere it got to that point. There might be stuff that he chooses to do that's not even in the vision at all. He's free. He's not bound by that. He did, He was. He's under no contractual obligation to reveal all of his plans in advance in that vision. Right? Um, beyond that point that is the point revealed to the Valar in the vision, beyond that point, we cannot see or know until by our own roads we come there, Valar or Eldar or men. In other words, we don't see the end beyond all hope. We can't see the end beyond all hope. Right? That's not possible. So, 
don't know. Maybe we should start speaking of hope uh, as far as uh, the ultimate ends there are concerned. Um, and um, uh, yeah, Stephen says, are most elves uh, nihilistic? Well, I don't know quite about nihilism exactly, but something like that, at least... I, I'm not going to speak on behalf of all the rest of the elves because we rarely hear them talking about this, right? That's one of the things that makes the Athrobeth so amazing. But, uh, Stephen, I think it's perfectly fair to say um, nihilism is a road open to them, right? Um, it it is It would be understandable for an elf, knowing what the elves know, as Finrod says, um, you know, what Finrod reveals it would make a certain amount of sense. Uh, but, you know, he's now seeing that would be foolish, right? That would be presumptuous. Um, beyond that point, we cannot see or know. So maybe there is hope. And then the analogy. As may a master in the telling of tales keep hidden the greatest moment until it comes in due course, it may be guessed at, indeed, in some measure, by those of us who have listened with full heart and mind, but so the teller would wish. In no wise is the surprise and wonder of his art thus diminished, for thus we share, as it were, in his authorship. But not so, if all were told us in a preface before we entered in. Um, I, I just... I love this analogy. Um... <clears throat> Again, for like all the reasons I love this analogy. I love it in itself. I love it as a discussion of story. I mean, forgetting the elves and the men and the metaphysical issues in play here, I love it just for what it says about storytelling and story reading, right? Um, I, the surprise and wonder. If you guess at the ending, um, I've always been a little bit annoyed by people. I've... I get annoyed by people who are completely paranoid about spoilers. I am more annoyed when, and it's related, uh, when people feel like knowing, or like, when people say like, oh, but I could tell what was going to happen, or like, I knew in advance that this person, like, it was obvious from the beginning that this person was guilty of the, of the murder or whatever, right? Um, I, that, that doesn't make it a bad story, right? Like, that, that, um, a reader who holds out for shock, right? Who feels that the ending of a story has not been successful unless they are flummoxed by it, unless they are utterly taken aback, um, I always feel is missing an enormous portion of the joy of stories. Um, that's not that's not the only thing, certainly. Uh, I mean, it's not that that, that can be a very fun experience, Um uh, and when an author can successfully do that without wrecking the story, um, that's great. Um, sometimes I have felt that. Sometimes I have come to an ending like that, but felt that it has wrecked the story. Um, when, In the sense that the author brought in something like completely unexpected, uh, which felt like a cheat, right? Like, uh, you know... The ending isn't a fitting ending. It was just a successfully surprising ending, um, but it doesn't it doesn't satisfy 
right? In that kind of deeper sense, it was merely surprising. Um, and then once the surprise is gone, it's sort of done, right? Um, but um, yeah, Jennifer Pope says those readers must never reread anything. Yes, which I suspect, by the way, to be true of many of them, um, Jennifer. But uh, but that's, I think, one of the reasons why I have always been so resistant to the necessity for surprise, uh, because rereading has formed well over half the pleasure of uh, uh, books that I read. Um, I The number of books that I've read once, if I like it, I never just read it once. How can you do that? How can you even enjoy a book only reading it once? You can't even experience half of it if you only read it once. Um, uh, and again, that sort of... Um, uh, that sort of satisfaction, right? But I love the characterization um, that in in doing that, in feeling the ending coming, right? In uh, enjoying the story, investing yourself in, you know, the secondary world of that narrative and um, and feeling the ending coming, Right. Even if you're not thinking about it, even if you're not. But like, you know, having that sense of it, which is then fulfilled when the ending comes, characterizing that as sharing in a sense in the authorship process that we ourselves like the story is not just we're not just passively consuming the story. Right. The story is being like born in us. Right. It is we are. um uh, it's like we are giving birth to the story in our own minds, in a sense, right? It doesn't originate from us, uh, but we participate in the story um, in when we read in that way and when it has that effect on us. I just, I think that's amazing. Um, absolutely think that that's amazing. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um yeah. Now, Jocelyn, I agree. There is a, a, a big dilemma between, you know, the, the more because there are, as you say, only so many minutes in a life. Right. So the more time you spend rereading, the fewer total books you can read. Um, absolutely. Um, myself, I just uh, I cheerfully made that sacrifice a long time ago. Uh, and uh, and I, I don't regret it at all. Um, I would rather reread the good books that I already know for the rest of my life and never read another new book. If I had to choose between doing nothing but reading new books the whole rest of my life and doing nothing but rereading books I've already known, I would do the latter in a heartbeat. In a hundred times out of a hundred, I would choose that. Um, and I would not feel that my life was cheapened uh, or that I'd lost out uh, by that. Of course, a fun balance is good. Um, but, um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, I can't, I can't grudge the sacrifice. I really can't. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Again, I'm not, I'm not anti new books, but, um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, uh, uh, but, but yeah, no, I, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I've gotta choose the old over the new if it comes to it there. Um, because of course, a new book might be bad. You you don't know what you're getting when you read a new book, right? Um, but the old books, uh, there's always more to be learned from those. Anyway, whatever. Um, but to 
go past the surface of the analogy, which I love all like enormously all by itself and into the uh, deeper purport of the analogy. Um, it, this, of course, touches on Tolkien's doctrine of subcreation. Right. And in a really deep and subtle way, um, when. When the creatures within Eru's creation um, guess in some measure at what the plan is, at sort of where creation is moving, at what Iluvatar might have in store for them. If they do that, not because they're just kind of making stuff up totally their own, but because they've listened right, to the story with a full heart and mind, um, then they are participating. They're sharing in his authorship. They are sub-creating. Listening with a full heart and mind to the storyteller, right? Um, I keep coming back to... Um, uh, I keep coming back to um, uh, the... One of my favorite lines in the Council of Elrond, it's kind of a, an understated line in some ways, is when Elrond says at the end, if I understand aright all that I have heard, then I think that this task is appointed for you, Frodo. If I understand aright all that I have heard. Um, this is not Elrond claiming some mystical foreknowledge, right? Foresight has not come upon him. He's not throwing a prophecy here, right? Um, he's not researching history. What he's doing is listening to the story with a full heart and mind, right? This is someone who has paid attention to the music of the Ainur, right? This is somebody who has spent many, many years observing and studying carefully how things work, how the world happens, how the will of Iluvatar is unfolded in the world, right? And someone who has listened with a full heart and mind and has been, is, is, you know, in the big picture and is now doing that same thing in the small picture. And he says, I think that this is right. I think that this is what is supposed to happen. Um, that's... That to me, that's like the, the you know the great wisdom of Elrond. There, that's what that is the sense in which Elrond is the greatest of the lore masters, right? Um, that he's able to do, uh, able, willing, um, uh, you know, volunteering to do that kind that kind of thing, and that is the sort of thing um, that listening with a full heart and mind. That's the kind of thing I think uh, that Finrod is talking about there. Um, and in doing so, in doing what he did there, uh, in kind of putting his own seal of approval uh, on Frodo's choice there, Elrond is participating in Iluvatar's own authorship. He is helping to subcreate history, right? Not just performing art, right? Not just doing art, but, um, but helping to... Um, helping to subcreate history as it is happening, right? That's what, um, and that's what we all do, of course, in our choices, right? But that's what, that was one of Elrond's 
participations there. Some people will say Elrond didn't do all that much, right? That's why Peter Jackson had to give him another job, right? It wasn't enough just for Elrond to do his thing. He had to, like, bring the sword all the way to Dunharrow, right, um, on that crazy, wacky trip that he took uh, in the movies um, because he needs a bigger role, right? He needs to do, he has to participate in another turning point in order to show how important he is. I understand. I, I don't, uh, um, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna knock uh, the Peter Jackson team for wanting to do that kind of thing, right? Um, with Elrond in the film. Um, but, uh, but again, I think what they're, what they're making more overt in the film is, is exactly that kind of thing. Anyway, um, but not so if all were told us in a preface before we entered in. So here is his, his final observation. First, Luatar keeps secrets. He doesn't tell us everything, and he's free to do stuff, even that he hasn't told us, right? And it's, but, but, but it's okay if we kind of figure that out. In fact, it's good. And we become participants by figuring it out as it goes along. And that, in turn, helps me to understand why he didn't tell us all of it in the first place, why he did take away the vision, right? Why the entire story wasn't revealed from the beginning. Because if it were, we would, be depri- we would become mere passive um, uh, objects in the story. Um, we would not be... Uh, Sub-creators. We would not be contributing. All right. What then would you say is the supreme moment that Arrow has reserved? Andreth asked. Ah, wise lady, said Finrod. I am an Elda, and again I was thinking of my own people. But nay, of all the children of Eru. I was thinking that by the second children we might have been delivered from death. For ever as we spoke of death being a division of the united, I thought in my heart of a death that is not so, but the ending together of both. For that is what lies before us, so far as our reason could see, the completion of Arda and its end, and therefore also of us children of Arda, the end when all the long lives of the elves shall be wholly in the past. And then suddenly I beheld as as a vision Arda remade, and there the Eldar completed but not ended, could abide in the present forever, and there walk, maybe, with the children of men, their deliverers, and sing to them such songs as, even in the bliss beyond bliss, should make the green valleys ring and the everlasting mountain tops to throb like harps. Oh my goodness. Um, yes. Uh, notice his language uh, is getting almost psalm-like there at the end, uh, for those of you who know the Psalms. Um, uh, uh, I was thinking that by the second children we might have been delivered from death. Um, he was remembering that he was defining death before as the separation of the Thea and the Proa, right? That was his definition of death. 
So notice how he's kind of coming back around and reversing himself. Um, she, Endreth, said to him earlier, you don't know anything about death. You Eldar don't really experience real death, right? Just a, a temporary, like a relocation, right? Um, it's not th- what it is. It's nothing like to you what it is to us, right? And he said, no, 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 we do. I I hear you. Yes, it's true that when we die, we can get our bodies back and stuff and it's no real big deal. But that's not the point. Um, There is a death that lies before us that is every bit as final as the death that you talk and every bit as uncertain and every bit as, uh, you know, and we have as little information about what happens to us as you guys do. Um, And remember, she was quite sobered by that. But notice how he has now observed a psychological, not a psychological, a philosophical inconsistency that he didn't notice before, that Finrod didn't notice before, right? He said, oh no, we elves know death. We're all anticipating death. Death is coming. The slow-footed hunter is coming for us all, right? Except, as he now points out, that death was not death by his own definition. The death which is the separation of the fea from the Hroa. The death that he said all of the elves are looking forward to uh, is... not a division of the united, but an ending together of both. Not a division of the united, but an ending together of both. A time when Arda itself, when both the Hroa and the Fea of the elves would be merely stopped because Arda ends. And at that point, all the long lives of the elves shall be wholly in the past. Um, But now, but now he has this other picture, this other vision that he, this idea that he beheld as in a vision, Arda remade. Not just Arda unmarred, not just Arda set back to what it was at the beginning, but a remade Arda, a new Arda. And that perhaps the Eldar could be brought there, completed, but not ended, completed, but not ended. They will have come to the end when all their long lives within Arda shall be holy in the past. When at the end of all things, at the end of all things within Arda, right, their lives have come to the conclusion of the arc that was established for them. When the lives of the elves within Arda are complete and whatever process has been happening within them is finished. And thus completed, they needn't end. Thus completed, they could abide in the present forever and perhaps walk with the children of men, their deliverers, and sing to them such songs as even in the bliss beyond bliss should make the green valleys ring and the everlasting mountain tops to throb like harps. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, Nancy says, walking with others in a beautiful place after dying seems to be kind of Finrod's thing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. He's kind of into that, Nancy. No question. Um, no question. Uh, George says it's fascinating uh, realizing that this is the Finrod that sacrifices his life for Baron later. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, now, of course, this is retconned into that, right? You know, uh, Finrod, the character, sacrificed his life for Baron, you know, long before Tolkien uh, came to these ideas. But I love that, too, George, the way in which this, when we think about, when we kind of introduce this realization, this moment into Finrod's life, right? Both of the things, right, George, both his, the end of the life of his current Hroa, Right. The body that's sitting here talking to Endreth is going to end uh, right uh, at the you know teeth of the werewolf there, um, saving Baron's life. Then that gets this whole new dimension. Uh, right. That he would sacrifice his life to spare uh, one of the children of men. Of, of course he would. Of course he would. Um, that he would choose to deliver one of his deliverers. Yeah, that's quite lovely. Right. And Nancy, also the point that you are making, right, this image, this vision of uh, walking with others in a peaceful place after dying um, also itself becomes enriched by this uh, this image. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Josiah, I agree. I can't help but think of the end of Leaf by Niggle there at the end, the, the mountains ringing with the laughter uh, of, uh, of, of, of Niggle and Parrish at the end. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, yes. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Finrod is. Uh, I, don't, I don't even think I would say he's coming really close to describing heaven. I believe that he is describing heaven. The bliss beyond bliss. Yes. That's just what he's describing. Uh, Amon is itself, right? You know, uh, the blessed realm is still within Arda, right? Um, it's still an Arda thing. It's going to pass away. But there's a bliss that lies beyond even, you know, that, that, is, that is only an image. That is only a taste of bliss, right? As we know, it's subject to the marring of Arda. Grief comes there. The Valar themselves were wrestling with that when they were looking at the death of Muriel. Uh, and then, of course, that's long before even the darkening and 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 everything else. Um, but um, the uh, bliss beyond bliss is something quite different. Abiding in the presence forever. We're talking about not just perpetuity, not just getting more time, not just the extension of the life of the Eldar, but abiding completed and perfected within that a present forever. That is a vision again not of perpetuity, not of an indefinite extension of Arda but of eternity itself. Um, Pretty heady stuff here Finrod. Then Andreth looked under her brows at Finrod. And what, when ye were not singing would you say to us? she asked. Finrod laughed. I can only guess, he said. Why, wise lady, I think that we should tell you tales of the past and of Arda that was before, 
of the perils and great deeds and the making of the Silmarils. We were the lordly ones then, but ye, ye would then be home, looking at all things intently as your own. Ye would be the lordly ones. The eyes of the elves are always thinking of something else, you would say. But ye would know then of what we were reminded, of the days when we first met and our hands touched in the dark. Beyond the end of the world we shall not change, for in memory is our great talent, as shall be seen ever more clearly as the ages of this Arda pass, a heavy burden to be, I fear. But in the days of which we now speak, a great wealth. And then he paused, for he saw that Andreth was weeping silently. Alas, Lord, she said, what then is to be done now? For we speak as if these things are, or as if they will assuredly be. But men have been diminished, and their power is taken away. We look for no ardor remade. Darkness lies before us, into which we stare in vain. If by our aid your everlasting mansions were to be prepared, they will not be builded now. Oh, so, first, again, how he can do this. How Tolkien can add one more step, which does not just add to, but transforms everything that came before. What's the point of elves? Right? Uh, you know, last... I titled our last session, What's the Point of Humans? Right? Um, and Finrod came to his conclusion about that. Right? That, that humans were as were gifted as they were right were made as they were they're they're fair remembering this other place looking to this other place looking in wonder but forgetfulness also uh at the world around them because this was not their home this is not the place uh that they know that they it only just reminds them of their home right and their fair are drawn to this other place, and their fear will draw their bodies after them, and therefore establish the bridge through which the bridge through which, and the hope by which one can think that Arda itself will be remade as their Hoar army remade, will be resurrected, like the bodies of men are resurrected. Um, and so that's the point of humans, according to Finrod, right? Um, and now he says, what is the answers the question, what is the point of elves? Um, why have elves then? Why not just start with humans? He knew in advance. Arda was already marred when the elves woke up, right? If what he needed, if what Iluvatar wanted was uh, creatures of his own making that would serve as his instruments, the fulfillers, the heirs and fulfillers of all, serve as his instruments to transform and bring about Arda Remade, um, would be sort of the catalyst for Arda Remade. Um, if that was his intention, why didn't he just do that? Right? Why have elves at all? Why have the firstborn? And here is Finrod's answer. Beyond the end of the world we shall not change, for in memory is our great talent. In memory is our great talent. What are the elves good for? Memory. They retain as a living thing all that they have experienced. So all of the elves, through all of the history of Arda, 
Um, again, that's what he means when he talks about them being complete, right? With the whole of their lives in the past, which is good, right? It's good because it means all of their long lives, century after century, millennium after millennium, is now living in their memory. They are now the living vessels that hold the history of Arda itself. And they will be brought to Arda Remade so that the elves will be, if the humans are going to be the instruments, uh, sort of the, the bridgehead or the catalyst, right, uh, that helps to bring about Arda Remade. So the elves are going to be the vessels who will bring with them all that is good, all that is to be remembered of the original Arda, um, so that nothing from Arda will be lost. It will pass away, but it will not be lost. And the new Arda remade will be both new and better. And it's like a new book and an old book at the same time, right? Um, uh, that is... Um, uh, uh, really incredible. <laughs> it's really incredible. Um, uh, the association between elves and memory is an old one. In a sense, it, it, it dates all the way back, in Tolkien's mind, I mean, dates all the way back to, um, like, you can hear it in Corterion Among the Trees, the poem he first wrote in, what, 1914, something like that? Um, 1917? Somewhere around there. Mid-19-teens. Um, Criterion Among the Trees, uh, where, like, the elves have nothing left but memory, basically. They're, you know, they're, they're sort of these, uh, uh, these sort of wandering spirits. Um, but you, you, can, you can, I think, begin to hear that association even there. Um, and think of the way that that idea is alluded to on multiple other occasions, right? Like whether it's Legolas talking about elvish memory and dreams uh, in The Lord of the Rings, uh, or whether it's the narrator of the Silmarillion telling us about the burden that will grow upon the elves of memory um, uh, as, you know, the, the millennia go by uh, over the course of the history of Arda. Um, but that idea never went anywhere, right? It was there, been there for decades. It's been there, but it was like sitting there. And now all of a sudden, like all of it comes together into this incredibly subtle picture. Um, just, just amazing. Just amazing. Um, but there's the problem, right? Um, yes, Josiah, you're right. The memory of the elves can transform the very darkness of Arda Mard into wealth. Yes, because even sad stories are good to have been, right? Even Sam knows that uh, good ending stories aren't the best kind to hear, right? Um, and all of the story of Arda Mard is a sad ending story in one sense, right? 
in a good sense, in the best sense, uh, and the good that is to come uh, of listening to that kind of story, right? Um, that kind of good is um, going to be brought to all of like elvendom and humanity, right? In the bliss beyond bliss. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Stephen is remembering the last paragraph of uh, uh, the last battle. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, for them it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Uh, yes. Um, though I think that Tolkien here is adding a dimension above what Lewis is playing with, as we said last time, Lewis is playing with a lot of the same kind of platonic ideas uh, and uh, going beyond Plato uh, in some ways, like Tolkien is here. I think there's some strong similarities. I think it would be an awesome paper topic for Middlemoot uh, to do a close comparison and contrast of what Lewis and Tolkien do with these different platonic ideas uh, in uh, the Athrobeth and the Last Battle, just saying. But um, uh, but anyway, Stephen, the thing that I would add here is the way in which uh, it's not only just the title and cover page, right? But that story itself, the, the whole story of Arda being brought into the story of the new Arda is transformed and serves to transform uh, uh, everything else there. Um, but there's a problem, right? There's a problem, which is, Andreth is like, wow, this is all really moving, but, um, well, this kind of makes it suck even more <laughs> that it all got screwed up because all this, all of this reasoning, all of this train of thought was premised upon the immortality of humans, right? That Andreth was saying is true according to the lore of men uh, that they were once immortal, but they're not anymore, right? So men have been diminished and their power is taken away. We're not immortal now. Um, now we do just leave our bo our bodies just gets left behind and rot. We don't take them with us. You can see, right? You've seen our corpses, right? Um, we look for no artery made. Darkness lies before us into which we stare in vain. If by our aid your everlasting mansions were to be prepared, they will not be builded now. This makes me feel twice as bad, Finrod, about the current state of humanity, right? Before I was just feeling like we got gypped, right? Like we got, we got ripped off uh, because this gift that was given to us, our birthright, was taken away by an external force, right? We were deprived of this um, by the shadow, by Morgoth. Um, and But now it turns out that y'all were robbed too. So great. Excellent. Um, exactly, James. We took you down with us. So isn't that fun, right? I'm glad we worked that out, right? Okay, well, Finrod, what do you have to say about that? Have ye then no hope, said Finrod? What is hope, she said? An expectation of good? which, though uncertain, has some foundation in what is known? 
It's a pretty good definition of hope, actually. An expectation of good, which, though uncertain, has some foundation in what is known. Okay, yeah, sounds good. Then no. If if that's how you define hope, then no, we don't have any. That is one thing that men call hope, said Finrod. Amdir, we call it. Looking up. But there is another which is founded deeper. Estel, we call it. That is, trust. It is not defeated by the ways of the world, for it does not come from experience, but from our nature and first being. If we are indeed the Eruhin, the children of the One, then he will not suffer himself to be deprived of his own, not by any enemy, not even by ourselves. This is the last foundation of Estel, which we keep even when we contemplate the end. Of all his designs, the issue must be for his children's joy. Amdir, you have not, you say. Does no Estel at all abide? Maybe, she said. But no, you do not perceive that it is part of our wound that Estel should falter and its foundation be shaken? Are we the children of the One? Are we not cast off finally? Or were we ever so? Is not the Nameless the Lord of the World? Ouch. Okay. Um, she defines Amdir, basically. An expectation of good, which, though uncertain, has some foundation in what is known. That is Amdir. That is hope. That's one kind of hope. Looking up is what Amdir means, right? Is what they call it. But the other hope, the deeper hope, Estel, is trust. It is not defeated by the ways of the world, for it does not come from experience, but from our nature and first being. You will remember that Manway talked about this, right? Manway, this is what Manway described by hope. Remember when he talked about hope? Uh, hope is the high path, right? You, you can take the path, you can take the path of, 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 of despair, you can take the path of justice, or you can take the path of hope, right? The path of hope is the highest path. Um, and that hope, he said, is the hope in Arda unmarred. Both Arda as it was meant to be, and Arda as it may someday be, Arda remade as it will someday be, right? Um, but that's why this hope is a lot like faith, closely tied to faith. It is not defeated by the ways of the world, for it does not come from experience. Estelle is not empirical, but that doesn't mean it's groundless nor exactly blind. It comes from our nature and first being. And that's what Manway was talking about, right? There is something in us that knows how things were supposed to be, even though we have no experience of that, right? We don't, we've never seen justice, real justice, right? We've never seen... um, you know, a perfectly good person, but but we know what it should be, right? We have, we are born with Estel from our nature and first being because we are the Erohin, the children of the one, he says, right? Um, so we, we have hope which derives from that, not based on experience, not because we've ever seen it, not because we expect it to happen, not because we think it's likely, but because 
It's what should have been, and it's what shall be. Even if it isn't what has been, what is, or what's gonna happen. Right? That's not... Those things, those temporal things, are not what this hope is about. This hope is about those things which are above the shadow. Right? This is the hope that Sam has his vision of and sings about in his song. Um, uh, for him, the stars are the symbol of that, right? Uh, in his song in the Tower of Kirathungal. Um, so George says, is Estelle faith? It, it's very closely connected to it. Um, hope in this deep sense and faith are very closely connected. Um, I would go so far as to say they are not really separable. If you have no faith, you cannot have Estelle. It's not possible. Um, it is premised in faith. That doesn't necessarily mean that faith, if you have faith, you get hope as a bonus, right, automatically. It's a separate thing, right? It's one thing to believe in the framework. Right to accept, to trust in the framework, right? What should have been and what shall be. It's another thing to hope in it, right? To uh, You can believe that that exists and yet still give up in the Tower of Kirathungal, right? That's possible, right? You can have faith and not hope. And have your your hope can fail, even if your faith remains, right? So they're not identical, but they are intimately, intimately tied together. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, Yes. Um, good question. Uh, when thinking about the... I mean, here I am talking about um, faith and hope, right? Faith and hope are two out of what in Christian tradition are called the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, right? Faith, hope, and love. Um, and um, the three theological virtues closely tied together. Um, so the question is, uh, uh, when, you know, in, in, uh, when we're talking about the three theological virtues, is the hope that is described, is that Estelle? Is that the, is, is this what he's getting at? Um, is that Estelle? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, I do believe that when Paul is talking about hope, um, and, uh, of course, faith, hope, and love, the grouping of those three comes from 1 Corinthians 13, the, the, big, uh, the big charity chapter, the big love chapter, um, uh, so often read with good applicability, but poor uh, discernment at times, I think, at weddings. Um, uh, anyway, um, the 1 Corinthians 13 chapter is what lumps the three of them together, faith, hope, and love. Um the big hope chapter is uh, uh, Romans 8, of course. Um, and yes, I do believe that that is, it is that kind of hope. Now, do I think that Tolkien is only just thinking of St. Paul here 
when he's talking about Estelle in this passage or when we are seeing Sam's hope in the return of the king? No, no, I don't think that that's it's it's not it's not as simple as that. Um, he is not only, you know, uh riffing on St. Paul. Really. He's not only just applying St. Paul uh, in the narrative there. But, but yes, yes, there is that, 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 it is that deeper connection. He, when, in establishing the fact that there are two different concepts, right? The difference between the expectation of good and this deeper, higher hope, this Estelle hope. Um, Cecilia, it is uh, very much that kind of Christian theological appeal, I believe, that he is making there. Um, and absolutely, Arthur, this passage makes the naming of Aragorn as Estelle more poignant and meaningful. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, to call him hope. Um, again, yet another thing. Right? That's written. That's been written before he writes this. This is the paragraph that introduces Amdir and Estelle. Um, the distinction between those two hopes. And the story of young Aragorn being named Estelle uh, has already been written and has now been retroactively made so much more profound, right? That it's not just... He isn't just named Optimism, <laughs> right? You know, he isn't just named, well, let's... Uh, uh, let's uh, hope for the best, right? That's not, he's not named Amdir. He's named Estelle. Um, and, uh, yes, it gives a, a, a very, uh, uh, important new dimension, uh, to the whole story of Aragorn in retrospect, right? Not to mention, oh, the cry, right? When he, on his death, when he is on his deathbed, and Arwen cries out, Estelle, Estelle, as he's dying, right? Oh, my goodness. Oh, talk about a line that is given, like, huge dimensions of meaning in retrospect. Um, but uh, amazing, amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly, David. She's not just naming her son glass half full. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes. Okay. Um, but but let's confront this uh, bigger problem here, um, which is what if they have been cast off? Is Estelle inviolate? What if Estelle has been wrecked, right? Um, what if what should have been and what shall be has now, due to the fall of man, been replaced by what should have been and what should have been, <laughs> but isn't going to be anymore, right? Um, and if that's true, then is not the nameless the lord of the world? And, of course, he jumps on her again after she says that. Um, uh, but she does suggest, she says, well... There are those people of the old hope. And he's like, what? Hmm, the old hope, you say? What then was this hope, if you know? Finrod asked. They say, answered Andreth. 
They say that the one will himself enter into Arda and heal men and all the marring from the beginning to the end. This they say also, or they feign, is a rumor that has come down through years uncounted, even from the days of our undoing. They say, they feign, said Finrod. Are you then not one of them? How can I be, Lord? All wisdom is against them. Who is the one whom ye call Eru? If we put aside the men who serve the nameless, as do many in Middle-earth, still many men perceive the world only as a war between light and dark, equipotent. I love that word, equipotent. I want to pronounce it like omnipotent, like equipotent. I think that's what I'm going to pronounce. I'm going to say it, equipotent. But you will say, nay, that is Manway and Melkor. Eru is above them. Is then Eru only the greatest of the Valar, a great god among gods, as most men will say, even among the Atani, a king who dwells far from his kingdom and leaves lesser princes to do here much as they will? Again you say, Nay, Eru is one, alone without peer. He made Ea and is beyond it, and the Valar are greater than we, and yet no nearer to his majesty. Is this not so? Yes, said Finrod. We say this. And the Valar we know, and they say the same, all save one. But which, think you, is more likely to lie, those who make themselves humble, or he that exalts himself? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> it's true, there's a difference of opinion here. Um, but, um, yeah. Okay. Um, she says... She is not one of the old hope. How can I be, Lord? All wisdom is against them. So here she's now giving her reasoning against, like, the reasoning that has prevented her from being one of the old hope. Uh, you know, a, a, a follower of the old hope. First of all, she's not sure about Arrow, right? It's not that she doubts that he exists, but what is he really? Right? Who is the one whom ye call Eru? Um, most men think that the light and dark are easily are evenly divided, right? That the world is a war between light and dark, and you know sometimes light wins, and uh, it kind of seems more often maybe dark wins, right? But you will say, no, 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 that's wrong, right? You'll correct my theology there. Manway and Melkor might be even but Eru is above them. Okay, so he's above them. So he's the greatest of the Valar. But you're going to say, she knows all of his answers, right? You're going to say, no, no, he's not just one of the Valar. He made Era, Era, Ea and is beyond it. Um, and the Valar are greater than we, but yet no nearer to his majesty, right? He is infinitely above them. Isn't this what you're going to say? Notice, she's setting him up here, right? She's setting him up. So haven't you taught me, haven't you taught us, right, humans, those, the Atani who have come to you, haven't you taught us that Eru is infinite, right? Not just the greatest of the gods, but infinite, infinitely above, infinitely greater than all of the Valar who have entered into Arda, right? See where she's going here? This is her problem. This is why she can't believe 
that the one will himself enter into Arda and heal men and all the marring from the beginning to the end. That is the belief of those of the old hope. But she can't buy it. How could he do that? How could he do that? Um, unless he's one of the Valar, then he could do it. If he were the greatest god of all the gods, okay, sure. But if so, then he doesn't have the power to do the. But no, 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 okay, no, you say he's infinite, right? Okay. And Finrod's like, yep, nope, that's correct. We say this, and the Valar we know, and they say it, right? Except for Melkar, but we're pretty sure he's lying, right? We, we apply this clever test to see if he's lying, right? Okay. I do not doubt, said Andreth. And for that reason, the saying of hope passes my understanding. It's because I am convinced by your theology that I have a hard time believing this, she says. How could Eru enter into the thing that he has made, and then which he is beyond measure greater? Can the singer enter into his tale, or the designer into his picture? He is already in it, as well as outside, said Finrod. But indeed, the indwelling and the outliving are not in the same mode. That is, the sense in which Eru is within Arda is not the same in which he is outside of Arda. Right? Okay. Truly, said Andreth, so may Eru in that mode be present in Ea that proceeded from him. Fine. Okay, so he can be here in some sense. Right? But they speak of Eru himself entering into Arda. And that is a thing wholly different. How could he, the greater, do this? Would it not shatter Arda? Or indeed all Ea? How is it possible? I mean, it does not compute. How could Eru himself, not just like in the mode in which he is present within Arda, right? Um, not just in that mode, but he him in the outliving mode, right? He himself, in his true being, enter into Arda. Since he's so much good, I mean, he's going to break it, right? He's going to break it. Exactly, Nancy. Turns out that art is bigger on the inside. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, Ask me not, said Finrod. These things are beyond the compass of the wisdom of the Eldar, or of the Valar, maybe. But I doubt that, you're, that our words may mislead us, and that when you say greater, you think of the dimensions of Arda, in which the greater vessel may not be contained in the less. But no such words, but such words may not be used of the measureless. If Eru wished to do this, I do not doubt that he would find a way, though I cannot foresee it. For, as it seems to me, even if he in himself were to enter in, he must still remain also as he is, the author without. And yet, Andreth, to speak with humility, I cannot conceive how else this healing could be achieved, since Eru will surely not suffer Melkor to turn the world to his own will and to triumph in the end. Yet there is no power conceivable greater than Melkor save Eru only. Therefore, Eru, if he will not relinquish his work to Melkor, who must else proceed to master, then Eru must come in to conquer him. More, even if Melkor 
or the Morgoth that he has become, could in any way be thrown down or thrust from Arda, if only that could happen, still his shadow would remain, and the evil that he has wrought and sown as a seed would wax and multiply. I wonder what that would look like. And if any remedy for this is to be found, ere all is ended, any new light to oppose the shadow, or any medicine for the wounds, then it must, I deem, come from without. Okay. Um, uh, I love Finrod's beginning. These things are beyond the custom, the compass of the wisdom of the elders. I'm not going to pretend to know the answer to this, right? I don't know the answer to this. Um, but he immediately goes to back in one sentence, right? He's like, I don't know, can't claim to know, even the Valar don't know, so my conversations with Manway are going to be no help here, right? But that doesn't mean we can't think about it. And he does uh, proceed to reason about it, right? He says, okay, so first thing is, I think that the problem is your words. You are saying... Eru can't enter Arda because Eru is greater than Arda. Sure, he's greater than Arda, but not in a physical sense. Um, When you're saying greater, you're imagining dimensions, the way that dimensions work within Arda, in which the greater vessel can't be contained in the less. If you try to take, you know, a big thing and shove it into a small box, you're gonna break the box or the thing, one or the other, right? Um... But that's not, that's not how, you know, Eru is not fixed like that. It doesn't, there's no reason to think it works that way. Yes, he's greater in some sense, but the, his very greatness, right? The infinity that is Eru gives him the power to do this if he wants to, right? He couldn't somehow make himself able, smaller enough, right, to enter into Arda. Um, he is the measureless, right? He's not, um... He is infinite. That doesn't just mean huge. It means measureless. Uh, You can't measure with big numbers or small, right? If he wished to do this, I don't doubt that he would find a way, though I cannot foresee it. Um, So you see, by the way, um, those of you, of course, I don't want to leave it unsaid for those of you who are less familiar with Christian doctrine. um, This is almost the doctrine of the Incarnation, that they are talking about, right? The idea that God comes, enters into the world himself. Uh, the idea of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, um, that's the thing, though, that Finrod doesn't foresee. Uh, if he wished to do this, I do not doubt that he would find a way, though I cannot foresee it. What Finrod fails to foresee is the mechanism, right? He fails to foresee that... Uh, God would be born within a human child, would be incarnate within a human child. That's the, that's the link, right, that Finrod doesn't see. Um, but that he sees that Eru could, in theory, if he chose to, enter into Arda, that he believes to be possible. Who's to say that that could be impossible for Eru, right? Um, uh, And even if he himself were to enter in, he must still also remain as he is, the author, without. And hence we have 
exactly as you said, Michael, uh, we're halfway to the Trinity, right? We now have God the Father and God the Son conceived of, right? As it were, to use a kind of conspicuous word. Um, yes. Um, and yet, and now he goes on to speak, he says to speak with humility. And he says to speak with humility because he's speaking of very great things indeed. He's about to make a very big claim, right? He's about to draw conclusions about things he does not himself fully understand, right? And the big statement that he's cautiously setting up there is, I cannot conceive how else this healing could be achieved. As he goes on to explain, Finrod is here logically combining several premises, which he believes to be true, right? Premise number one, Melkor is the greatest, as in most powerful, creature in Arda. Even the Valar are not, it's not equal between Manwe and Melkor. Melkor is more powerful than Manwe is. Melkor is the mightiest creature in Arda. Um, fact number one. Fact number two. Eru is not going to abandon Middle-earth or any of Arda or any of Ea to Melkor. Melkor has claimed it for his own. It isn't his own. Melkor has marred it. Eru's not okay with that. Remember, Manwe himself taught that Arda unmarred is a reference both back to what should have been but is not and to what shall be. The idea of Arda healed, of Arda restored, of Arda remade is a tenet of faith for the Valar themselves. They believe in that. Finrod learned it, it seems, from Manwe. He believes that the world will be healed. And so he's now saying, so, you know, in humility, now come to think of it, he's, uh, he's doing some extemporaneous theology here. He's been doing that already, right? But he does some more of it here. If the world is to be healed, if that is going to happen at some point in the future, how else could it be affected? Nothing greater from within Arda is going to rise up against Melkor and drive him out. Even if he could be chucked out and, you know, captured, thrown out of Middle-earth, thrown out of Arda entirely, yet still the mar it's not going to heal the marring. It's certainly not going to undo the marring, right? And of course, that's what is going to happen. The War of Wrath, he's going to be chained up and he's going to be cast out the, the Gate of Night. But in fact, exactly as he describes, the shadow will still remain and the evil that he has wrought and sown as a seed will wax and multiply. And we will see that through the Second Age and the Third Age and on, right? Um, Melkor still has that power, that influence over Arda. The whole thing, the marring itself, can't be healed. It's worked into the DNA of the planet, right? Um, and it can't be healed unless Eru does it himself. Since Melkor is the greatest other than Eru, and since Eru is going to bring about the healing, how else could he do it but to do it himself, to take a hand himself? Um, Finrod doesn't fully understand 
how the incarnation would work, but he sees that it is necessary. If any remedy for this is to be found, ere all is ended, any new light to oppose the shadow or any medicine for the wounds, then it must, I deem, come from without. Those of us who are within don't have the power to bring it about. Only Eru does. So, he says to Andreth, not only is it um, theoretically possible, don't worry about the greater thing. Yes, he could enter Arda if he chose to. But not only is it theoretically possible, now that you mention it, right, uh, it seems almost inescapable that he will do that. In fact, with humility, he must do that. I think that's why he says with humility, because it sounds like he's giving marching orders to Eru, right? Like, don't you know, Eru, that this is what's supposed to happen, right? You know, he's he's not like bossing around the Almighty here, right? Um, so that's why he says, like, to speak with humility. This is how it has to happen. Then, Lord, said Andreth, and she looked up in wonder, you believe in this hope? Ask me not yet, he answered. For it is still to me but strange news that comes from afar. No such hope was ever spoken to the Quendi. To you only it was sent. And yet, through you, we may hear it and lift up our hearts. He paused a while, and then looking gravely at Andreth, he said, Yes, wise woman, maybe it was ordained that we Quendi and ye Atani, ere the world grows old, should meet and bring news one to another. And so we should learn of the hope from you ordained, indeed, that thou and I, Andreth, should sit here and speak together across the gulf that divides our kindreds, so that while the shadow still broods in the north, we should not be wholly afraid. Yes, wise woman, maybe it was ordained that we, Quendi, and ye, Atani, ere the world grows old, should meet and bring news one to another. And so we should learn of the hope from you ordained, indeed, that thou and I, Andreth, should sit here and speak together across the gulf that divides our kindreds, so that while the shadow still broods in the north, we should not be wholly afraid. Um... Yeah, this is uh, strange as news from Bree, right? Uh, uh, <laughs> David Atley, yeah, you're right. Um, I love that as we come towards the end of this conversation between the two of them, Finrod himself makes this conversation into a kind, it's like an enacted allegory of the meeting of men and elves. Right. Um, we've talked about what's the point of humans. We've talked about what's the point of elves. Right. And now we get why should there be two. Right. Um, why should those two things happen separately in these two different ways um, so that they should meet and sit there and speak together across the gulf that divides our kindreds. The likeness, the kinship between the two of them, 
connects them together. But the gulf, which is between them by their natures, the gulf that Eru set between them in the disparate nature of their two, of the two kindreds, um, the gulf makes it harder for them to connect, but it also makes it more wonderful when they do connect. It challenges them in a sense, right? They have to grow to a certain point before they can connect. And when they do, when they can speak together across the gulf that divides their kindreds, they find hope. While the shadow still broods in the north, we should not be wholly afraid. We should find hope and comfort in speaking to each other, in helping the way that the two of them, and we've seen both of them have gotten eye openers, right? Um, and I'm not sure that Finrod has not been the one who's gotten more eye openers. He has certainly not been the one just teaching this whole time, right? Um, he does a lot of thinking aloud. I kind of relate to Finrod in this way. Um, you know, he's doing a lot of his processing verbally here as he's going through, but this is stuff that he is just encountering and never even imagined before. Huge things that change the entire worldview of the elves if they should accept it, if they should come to see what Finrod has seen here as a consequence of his conversation with Andreth. So that this meeting, the meeting between Finrod and Andreth in friendship, um, you know, across the gulf that divides them, uh, should be a... Um, A sort of image of, right, a figure for how the two kindreds are supposed to connect together, not just to interconnect, right, not just to blend together. Um, there is a gulf that's set between them uh, by their natures. Um, they're really different. And yet they can connect. They can, um, what was the phrase that he used uh, about the I'm forgetting about their hands touching in the darkness wasn't there something about that where was that I'm losing it uh, darn it Somebody find that. Remember the passage I'm talking about? Um, oh, well. Um, oh, well. I got, no, there was, it was, I just read it. It was in the last few passages, but I can't, I can't find it. Hang on. I'm, I'm, I'm looking. About the, Hands meeting, eyes meeting, hands meeting in the darkness. Where was it? Ah, there it is. Found it. The eyes of the elves are always thinking of something else, ye would say. But ye would know then of what we were reminded. Of the days when we first met and our hands touched in the dark. That's it. There it is. There it is. There it is. Found it. Found it. Okay. Good. Uh, the days when we first met and our hands touched in the dark. That is what the meeting of the elves and men is like, right? That's what the this conversation between um, uh, 
that's what the conver- that's what the conversation between Finrod and Andreth uh, uh, themselves uh, is like. Um, Devora, you're absolutely right. They're thinking the thoughts that float on a different blood. Yes, to to phrase it like a hross. Yes, exactly. That's just how the hrossa uh, in uh, Melacandra would say it, Devora. Uh, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and neither of them would have the other, like both of them, because they are different, because there is a gulf between them, right? They both perceive different things. Because of that, both Finrod and Andreth bring different things to this conversation. And notice they not only bring different feelings and different rationales, but also different authorities, different experiences. Some things have been revealed to the elves by the Valar, right? Um, and so they know these things. They, they are certain about these things because they have been told by authorities that they trust and who were there and know, right? Um, but... The humans also have their authority. And David, this comes back to the question that you were asking, um, you know, what is the um, uh, what is the source of, you know, of this hope of this? You know, that she said this thing that came down from the beginning. Um, How do they know? Uh, David says, uh, you know, where else could it come from? uh, But a prophet. Yes, it's it is. there was a voice that whispered out of the darkness. Remember, David, um, that's that's all they know. Right. Um, now, one possibility, of course, is that they've been deceived uh, by Milkor. They've been deceived by the dark. And in some measure, that certainly seems to be true. But if I am understanding properly, the only I mean, David, as you say, it's got to come from a prophet. In other words, the lore of men, the lore of elves, is based upon fundamentally, like the foundation of their lore, is their teaching from the Valar. What the Valar have revealed to them about how things really are and how things really work. The ultimate foundation of human lore appears to be direct communication from Eru himself, as far as we can see. The Valar didn't do it. Um... More on that. We'll come back to that. But that's what seems to be. Absolutely. Um, yes. Um, yes, Jocelyn, I agree. It is, she says, it's more interesting now that Tolkien has one of the speakers male and the other speaker female. Um, yes, this idea of like the pair of them reaching across the gulf, right? The the two different perspectives that they have on things, the um, the difference in their sex, the difference in their gender, um, does seem to kind of map onto in some ways the difference. Uh, and that's not to say, and I am not saying, and I certainly am not suggesting that. I think that Tolkien is saying that, you know. Elves are fundamentally masculine and uh, and uh, humans are fun- fundamentally feminine. I, that's not what I'm saying. But just that they should be different, Jocelyn, right? That they should not be the same in that way um, does seem to connect and reflect with that, as is about to be emphasized even further. Um, one last note before we continue, and we can continue a little bit uh, before we're done. Um, uh, not much longer, but at least one more slide, I think. Um, notice the pronoun. 
he's been saying you almost all the time. To you only was it set, sent, and yet through you we may hear it and lift up our hearts. Um, yes, wise woman, maybe it was ordained that we, Quendi, and ye, Atani, ere the world grows old, should meet and bring news one to another, so that we should learn of the hope from you ordained. Indeed, that thou and I, Andreth, should sit here and speak together. Um, Christopher, in his notes, says that his father is inconsistent in the use of you and thou in this story. Um, this is one of the few places. There aren't very many places where I would say this, but this is one of the places where I would say Christopher's wrong, flat wrong. Christopher swung and missed. At the, he just missed it. Totally missed it. And that's fine. We all make mistakes. But he made a mistake here. He's dead, flat, absolutely wrong about his father's use of the pronouns in this story. As was pointed out beautifully at a paper given at Myth Moot 2 by Sparrow Alden, um, who gave a wonderful paper on the Athrobeth on exactly this question about the pronoun usage. Because um, we had been talking in a Signum, we did the Athrobeth in the Signum class. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was my Lewis and Tolkien class um, when I was looking at the Athrobeth and the last uh, and the last battle. Um, but anyway, uh, we were um, uh, we'd just been talking about the Athrobeth and talking about that note. Um, and I was expressing my skepticism, and she ran with it and went and showed really convincingly. And the, ever since she uh, really went through that and spelled that out, um, the um, uh, the the um, it's it's uh, um, it, it's it completely compelling. Like just Christopher is right. I mean, it's it's been proven wrong about that. He's not inconsistent. Um, he does sometimes use one and sometimes the other, but not arbitrarily, not because Tolkien was losing track of which one he was doing. It is very deliberate. The shift here is an enormously important shift. To you it was sent. Through you we may hear it. Um, uh, I, we shall learn of the hope from you that thou and I, Andreth. Thou is singular and familiar and intimate. You is plural and formal and respectful. You is what you say to someone who is in power. Thou is what you say to someone who is a peer, uh, to someone to, uh, to a singular person, first of all, and to someone who is a peer. This, by the way, is why, uh, remember Tolkien says in the appendices, this is one of the reasons why everybody thought that Pippin was a king. Um, because he said vow, he vowed uh, Denethor, basically, because that's what they do in the Shire. They don't use formal pronouns in the Shire. So he addressed Denethor as thou. Um, and everyone was like, dude, he just vowed Denethor. He's just like, yo, bro, what's up? So they're like, obviously, you know, he's the prince of the halflings because he's treating Denethor like a peer. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, but anyway, yeah. So that's um, uh, Jocelyn. I will ask um, 
Uh, in fact, hang on, Jocelyn. Jocelyn was asking if Sparrow's paper is accessible. I'll check. I'll check. Hang on. I'm going to I'm making a note right now, Jocelyn, so I don't forget because I'm very this is exactly the kind of thing that I come up and I say, oh, yeah, I want to remember to do that. And I am horrible at remembering to do things that I merely say I'm going to do if I don't write them down. So hang on. Ask Sparrow about paper. Re Athrobeth pronouns. And I will. Um, if I if I can get a copy of it, Jocelyn, which I'm sure she will give me, or if I can get a link to a place where it's available, then I will share it with you guys next time um, uh, through GoToWebinar here. Um, and we can post a link to it. Anyway, it's it's brilliant stuff. Um, anyway, okay. So when he shifts to thou and I, Andreth, he is speaking to her as a friend, right? This is why thou and I can sit here and speak together. So he goes deliberately from the meeting of two peoples, um, thanks to the fact that this hope was only sent to you, the Atani, right? Because of the way in which the meeting of the Atani and the Eldar, you know, the Atani and the Quendi, has been ordained, right, by Iluvatar, because of that, thou and I, two friends, are able to sit here and speak together across the gulf that divides our kindreds and to find, perhaps, some encouragement there so that we shouldn't be wholly afraid. Nancy, as you say, still a little bit afraid, right? It's not that there's no reason for fear, but, um, but we shouldn't despair, right? Remember, he has perceived from the beginning that she's kind of upset. She's been kind of upset from the beginning of their conversation, right? So he's not just thinking. He's not just gotten away into, like, abstract terms, right? Finrod has been doing some high-flying theology and philosophizing here in this conversation, but he's not lost sight of her personally and her feelings, right? You've been on edge, Andreth. I know something is bothering you, right? I know that you're sad and full of fear, and I'm here, and we can speak together. We are speaking together, not just wise woman and elvish philosopher, but... Um, two friends, thou and I. Um, across the gulf that divides our kindreds, said Andreth. Is there no bridge but mere words? And then she wept again. There may be, for some. I do not know, he said. The gulf, maybe, is between our fates, rather, for else we are close akin closer than any other creatures in the world. Yet perilous is it to cross a gulf set by doom, and should any do so, they will not find joy upon the other side, but the griefs of both, so I deem. He knows what she's talking about. He knows what she's getting at. Notice how cautious and careful he's being. Is there no bridge but mere words? There may be. For some, I do not know. 
perilous it is to cross a gulf set by doom, and should any do so, they will not find joy on the other side, but the griefs of both, so I deem. But why dost thou say mere words? Do not words overpass the gulf between one life and another? Between thee and me, surely more has passed than empty sound? Have we not drawn near at all? But that is, I think, little comfort to thee. I have not asked for comfort, said Andreth. For what do I need it? For the doom of men that has touched thee as a woman, said Finrod. Dost thou think that I do not know? Is he not my brother, dearly loved? I ignore. Iconar, the sharp flame, swift and eager, and not long ere the years since you first met and your hands touched in this darkness. Yet then thou wert a maiden, brave and eager, in the morning upon the high hills of Dorthonian. He knows. Andreth is in love with his brother, Aignor. Iconar, the sharp flame. I have not asked for comfort. For what do I need it? And he says gently, I know why you need it. I know the story. The doom of men. This question about death and why. I know that the deprivation of eternal life from humans is especially bitter to you, personally. It has touched thee as a woman. Because that gulf, the gulf that divides their kindreds, has made it impossible for her to be to be joined with the man that she loves through anything more than mere words. Notice how he comes back to that metaphor. And not long are the years since you first met and your hands touched in this darkness. Our hands touched in the darkness, he said, generally, right, metaphorically, of humans and elves broadly understood. But he says, I, I know in this darkness, the darkness of this, you know, the siege of Angband, under the shadow of Morgoth, your hand and Ignor's hand have touched. In the morning, upon the high hills of Dorthonian. Say on, said Andreth. Say, who art now? Who art now? But a wise woman, alone. An age shall not touch him. An, an age that shall not touch him has already set winter's gray in thy hair. But say not thou to me, for so he once did. Don't call me thou. Don't thou me, Finrod. He used to thou me. He spoke to me like I was a peer. And she now re resents that, right? Resents it. That's now a bitterness to her. Don't pretend. Don't try to pretend that we're equals. Because I know we're not equals. I am, I was a maiden, young and brave, on the hills of Dorthonian. And now I'm just a wise woman, alone, and graying. Alas, said Finrod, that is the bitterness beloved Adeneth 
woman of men, is it not, that has run through all your words? If I could speak any comfort, you would deem it lordly from one on my side of the sundering doom. But what can I say, save to remind you of the hope that you yourself have revealed? Notice his pronouns. That is the bitterness that has run through your words. You would deem it lordly to remind you of the hope that you yourself has revealed. He shifted from thou to you. At her, he's like, okay. He first was treating her with tenderness, treating her as a friend, uh, saying, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I, I want to help to bring you comfort for the bitterness, for the disappointment that I know you feel. And she says, don't thou me. And he immediately starts ewing her instead, treating her with respect. But notice how his other non his nouns betray his pronouns. He's ewing her, not vowing her, right? Treating her with formality and respect and calling her beloved Adoneth. Adoneth means woman of men. Female human, basically, right, is what that word means. Beloved Adoneth, beloved woman of men. She is both. She is a woman of men. This is the problem, right? This is, that's the source of bitterness. But she is beloved. That's also, the, that's that phrase, beloved Adoneth, is like the problem, right? And yet, he acknowledges it. He calls her beloved, right? He's speaking love to her, not romantic love, right? He's not propositioning her here. Um, he's speaking with great kindness and affection towards her, right? Um, wanting to speak comfort. But he says, if I could speak comfort, you would deem it lordly, right? Like I was just condescending to you. What can I say save to remind you of the hope that you yourself have revealed? I did not say it was ever my hope, answered Andreth. And even were it so, I would still cry. Why should this hurt come here and now? Why should we love you? And why should ye love us if ye do? and yet set the gulf between. Why should we love you? And if you love us, why, why the gulf, right? She's not saying... So, partly... Notice here again, she's... Her grief, her emotion, is on two levels. On the one hand, she is saying... Um, alas, alas for the sundering of our fates. Alas for the deprivation of humans that we do not have eternal life anymore, right? Um, alas that our lives, that we've been deprived, all those things that she said at the beginning, right? Alas that that should be, that that gulf should have, should happen, right? But she's also saying, so why won't you marry us, right? Why did he say no? Why did he say no? Why would he not have me. If ye love us, if he loved me, 
Why did he walk away? Why did he set the gulf between us? Because we were so made close kin, said Finrod. But we did not make ourselves, and therefore we, the Eldar, did not set the gulf. Nay, Adoneth, we are not lordly in this, but pitiful. That word will displease thee. Yet pity is of two kinds. One is of kinship recognized and is near to love. The other is of difference of fortune perceived and is near to pride. I speak of the former. We are not lordly, but pitiful. We are full of pity in this way. We didn't set the gulf. We can't choose it. It's not his fault. It's not because he didn't love you. It's not... He didn't set the gulf. He didn't make that call. Um, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Somebody was asking who was asking. Uh, David. Um, the grammatical significance of ye. Yes. Ye is the second person plural nominative case. Um, ye do. Um, you is the object, ye is the subject. It's the nominative case of the pronoun. So ye is plural. Um, thou is, so ye is thou is to thou, you is to thee, right? Um, the use of ye is one of the things that changed. So you in the plural is just, we use you now for both nominative and objective cases. Uh, but, um, uh, in older Usage ye was nominative in this way. Um, yeah, okay. Um, yes, ye is to I as you is to me. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's just right. Um, uh, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, Arthur, she does say we love you, but why should ye love us? But then she adds, but and if you do love us, well, why won't you love us then, right? Why is it that we're stuck with only words bridging the gap? By which, again, I am concluding here that Ignor told her that he loved her, but wouldn't be with her, wouldn't consummate their relationship, wouldn't marry her, right? He said no. He walked away from their relationship, but said that he loved her. That's what I conclude from her talk about words bridging the gap um, and about uh, words bridging the mere words bridging the gulf, having nothing but words to bridge the gulf and her talking about setting the gulf. Right. Um, and here's Finrod trying to explain uh, that it's um, uh, it's it's not um, it's not a gulf of their of their setting. Yeah, the difference between you and ye there is just about the case. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the ye is the subject of the verb, you will see. Okay. All right. I'm going to stop there. We can keep going, but I'm going to stop there. Uh, we will pick this up and look at the very end of the Athrobeth next time and where this conversation uh, about I ignore. And now that it has segued to the personal, um, one of the things that I want you to be thinking about as we prepare for the very end of the Athrobeth is thinking more about um, how the conversation that they had before maps onto this or to ask the question in another 
and more direct, but possibly more dangerous way. Why did Tolkien do this? Why did Tolkien, at the end of this very deeply philosophical and theological conversation, why does he add a love interest? Um, I don't think it's just to keep people interested, right? Surely if they had lost interest, they'd have been gone already. <laughs> he didn't introduce it early enough to, uh, to just keep people reading for that uh, purpose. Um, why? Why? Um, why does it go here? For what? In what way is the conversation between Endreth and Finrod about Ignor and Endreth's relationship? Why is that... Um, in what way is that a fitting ending to the Athrobath? Right. Um, so we'll think about that next time. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, awesome, awesome stuff today. I'm telling you, boy, the Athrobath. It's just... Uh, I, I really... I don't think there's anywhere that Tolkien gets deeper than he gets in the Athrobath. Um, this is Tolkien at some of his most profound. Um, so thanks everybody and I'll see you guys next week. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.